And now, it's First and Goal with your host, Big Bear and the Curtain Guy. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of First and Goal. We're your hosts. I'm Big Bear T. Tyler Bansky. I'm the curtain guy, Cole Shooty. And we have yet another fun, action-packed episode for all of you. We have a week of football in the books. Some contenders really gave us a scare here this last weekend. And some of the contenders, oh boy, we, we know what we're getting in them. But before we get into the action from week one, Curtain Guy, you got some news here. So you got some updates here on NIL. Let's uh, let's go into that. So as many of our listeners will probably remember, one of the first topics we discussed was that name, image, and likeness and how that's going to continue to evolve and change the college game. I have two updates for you that kind of, I want to say, personify what, what those changes are going to start to look like and what you can anticipate as fans moving forward. The, the first of those is Quinn Ewers, the 2022 quarterback, number one recruit in the country who reclassified to 2021 and is now enrolled at Ohio State. He just signed a deal with GT Sports Marketing for $1.4 million. You heard that right. $1.4 million. Now, this is for three years, and he's going to autograph whatever they want him to autograph. And trust me, if he ends up being half the player that he's anticipated to be, that marketing group will make their money back and then some. The other thing is Gavin Wimsat, who is the number 11 quarterback in the 2022 class and the number one recruit in the state of Kentucky, is leaving high school early and enrolling in Rutgers. And this is what you're going to start to see more often, especially with recruits that come from states that don't allow high school players to earn money off of NIL. Uh, this was Quinn Ewer's situation because Texas is vehemently against allowing high school athletes to earn money. Uh, Kentucky is one of those. I had to read through their bylaws, but they do specifically state that they will have to forfeit their amateur status and will no longer be allowed to participate in high school sports. Illinois is a big one that is against it. There's quite a few uh, states that are actually against it. So you're going to see the top end talent that are in states that are not going to allow them to make money are going to leave early and head to their college of choice so that they can start earning money as much as possible. Big Bear, do you have any thoughts on this? I think it's wild that this is coming to fruition. In college sports, for a while, we've talked about college basketball. Uh, Some of the main prospects have been skipping college to go to, let's say, the G League or to play overseas. That way they can make money before they can officially go pro. But this is a different element we haven't seen since the days of LeBron James, where he skipped college to go pro altogether. We're talking uh, these top high school football prospects are going to skip the last year of high school to have the opportunity to now make money based off their future prospectus, best way to put it. But this is, I would call this a risky move for a lot of companies or brands looking to sign with some of these athletes and NIL deals, mainly just because these kids haven't played at a collegiate level yet. And until they do that, I don't feel comfortable, and that's just my personal opinion, I don't feel comfortable signing them up and giving them a bunch of money until I know that the product on the field matches what I want to give all my money to. But that's just that's just my take on that. No, and, and and that makes sense. This is a lot of money that you're talking about handing to 18, 19 year olds who, like you said, have not stepped foot on the field yet. But what really gets me, and especially being the recruiting guy at Walk on Red Shirts, is this really messes with a lot of teams uh, recruiting cycles, not only in terms of you know what they have for a specific class, but how the dominoes fall for the future years moving forward. And Ohio State is a prime example of that. Right now, you have C.J. Stroud, who's the number two pro-style quarterback in his class. But behind him, you have Jack Miller, who was, I believe, the, the number 15 pro-style quarterback in his class. And then right behind him, you have five-star number three quarterback in his class, Kyle McCord. And now you have Quinn Ewers, who is the number one overall player in the country behind him. Two of those guys are going to be gone before you get to fall camp next year. So where does Ohio State go from here? Do you go after a guy like Drew Alar 
in the state of Ohio who's committed to Penn State and has been for six months now? Or do you say, screw 2022, let's look to 2023? Because you want that depth, but you don't want to be overloaded at a position where you can only have one guy. So like we always say, these are the situations that are going to come up. They're going to continuously come up. And it's going to be interesting to see how these universities are going to work this out and how these kids are going to utilize these new opportunities available to them. Absolutely, I agree. Uh, This is just the beginning. We're going to continue to see this more and more. Uh, Quinn Ewers is just the tip of the iceberg with this whole new change. Moving on to football. Week one in the books. We're looking back at the top 25, and there were some very, very interesting games this weekend. A lot of close calls that we'll get into, some upsets, some of the top 25 going down, but some bright side is teams like Alabama, they're still who we thought they were. There's no change. It's another year, and it looks like the tide's rolling. Cole, I want to go first into uh, some of the early day games. You know, Tulane going to play in Norman, Oklahoma against the Sooners after Hurricane Ida comes around. I like the gesture by Oklahoma. They they sprayed um, some of Tulane's mascot logos on the field to kind of give them a sense of, you know, a home turf, just a, a, a good gesture. I, I'm happy that they did that. But Oklahoma seemed to have a problem putting the game away. Spencer Rattler, 30 of 39, 304 yards, but he threw two interceptions, and Oklahoma rushing the ball only put up a total of 116 yards to Tulane's 100 yards. Tulane kind of kept pace. Uh they didn't hang with them the entire game, but they put up points in the fourth quarter and came up short with the Sooners winning 40 to 35. But was there anything that stuck out to you with this game in Norman? You know, I, this is one of the games that I actually did get to watch quite a bit of. And <laughs> it's week one. I'm, I'm going to start by saying that. So this isn't the end of the road for Oklahoma. This isn't the team that you're going to get the rest of the season. I still believe they're one of the top teams in the country. They still have a ton of talent on both sides of the ball, but it kind of felt like they just rolled into this game and expected it to go a lot differently than what it did. Like Big Bear said, the numbers for Spencer Rattler weren't great, but watching him, it was not a dude that I would put his name in the Heisman contention. He really got for the most part, matched by Tulane's Michael Pratt. Their QBRs are fairly similar. Pratt did not turn the ball over. And and Tulane never really gave up in this game. And that's why you saw them come up half a yard short on fourth down from really making this interesting as they were driving into Sooner territory. 13 unanswered points in the fourth quarter put them within a score of taking the lead and possibly winning it. And it just felt like Oklahoma fell asleep at certain times the beginning of the game, they they didn't look like they took Tulane very seriously. Then they used a 23 to nothing second quarter to jump ahead, and I really thought that was going to be the end of it. And then once again, they kind of fell asleep again and allowed Tulane to creep back into it, and they only put up three points in the entire second half. And that's not something you can do as the second-ranked team in the country. Um, you're fortunate enough to get that win. You're fortunate enough to get on to that next week, you know, 1-0, and and you're happy about that, but obviously there's a lot to build on um, from from both sides of the ball if you're the Sooners. Uh, I like that you mentioned the three points in the second half. Another team that came across that same situation was Iowa State. They were hosting the University of Northern Iowa this weekend. Ended up winning this game 16-10. to Again, only three points in the second half. Brock Purdy was held under 200 yards passing. A, a lot of these quarterbacks had a good time Throwing the ball this weekend, uh, Brock Purdy, again, another example. He was 21 of 26, but only 199. Let's just call it 200 yards. Brees Hall carried the rock 23 times, only put up 69 yards and a touchdown. So only one touchdown for Iowa State. But similar situation. We're going to talk about this a lot today. Week one jitters. Look, it's going to happen. We're not going to over-exaggerate and, and call anybody a flop and say that they're no longer title contenders after this first week, but you got to get the kinks out now because there's some big games coming up. Going on down the list, uh, let's see here. Oregon had a scare from Fresno State. Fresno State looked phenomenal. Uh, I mentioned this through the Twitter feed earlier this week, but I thought Fresno State was going to have no problem passing the ball because of Oregon's issues in the secondary. A lot of youth 
especially missing two of their key uh, defensive backs, Jamal Hill and DJ James. Fresno State put up their, their yards through the air, no problem. Ducks ended up pulling that one out. Cole, what took out to you in week one as some interesting things in your mind? To touch base on that that Iowa State game, it, it reminds me of what Steve had talked about on a previous episode of what you're going to get from Brock Purdy. And if that's what you're going to get from Brock Purdy, again, it wasn't bad. 21 of 26, 200 yards, but no touchdowns. No interceptions, no touchdowns. But that's not the output you need from that guy. If you want to beat the Sooners, if you want to beat Texas, if you want to be in that Big 12 title contention and possibly put yourself in that playoff contention, that's not what you need from Brock Purdy. And that's not what you need from the team overall. You know, you're you're returning a lot of guys. And to win a game like that, as ugly as it was... I get it. You know, we're coming off a of COVID year. Everything's weird, but you, you got to show me something, something more than that. And and the same goes for Brees Hall. You carried the ball 23 times and you averaged three yards a carry and your longest run was 12 yards. That's not going to cut it. And certainly not when you get into conference playing, when you go up against the big boys. Oregon, the defense did impress me at times. Uh, they do a nice job of turning the ball over and setting their offense up in in really nice position. And we'll talk more about the Ducks as we get to our Saturday showcase. But Big Bear, you and I agreed that we just don't think that Anthony Brown is the guy that's going to lead the Ducks to where they need to be and where they can be offensively. Yes, absolutely. As you said, you know, we're going to go more in depth with this as we get to today's Saturday showcase. But just a brief overview, and I'm not just going to hate on Anthony Brown here. I think the sentiment from the fan base after week one was that what did he do? Yes, he ran and and ran an option to perfection for the game-winning touchdown. Great play, great ingenuity of that play by him. But through the air passing, I could probably count on one hand the number of passes he threw over 20 yards on Saturday. A lot of passes he was throwing horizontally, uh, almost like a screen or a lateral. A couple of them that we were questioning, okay, is that a fumble? Like, throw the ball down the field. And he got under pressure a lot. Now, I don't know if the offensive line was just getting overpowered, but it felt like at the first sense that he was rattled, he took off in a scramble. And on multiple attempts, there might be a wide receiver that came off a block and was starting to make some room to make a play. And he either ran with it or he threw a dud into the ground like two, three yards short of the wide receiver. And that's just not what you want. That's not going to win you a championship or beat the big boys. So keeping this short, because I know we're going to go so far in depth with this later on with my ducks and your bucks. But one more game I want to talk on here before we move on from week one to week two was the Sunday show with Notre Dame and Florida State. We both picked Notre Dame in this game, so we feel okay after they came out on top. But other than that, you know, other than the score, that's not the case. I thought Florida State really impressed us both. Jordan Travis played an okay game. Without him having mistakes in that game, Notre Dame did not win. But Mackenzie Milton, that's who I want to highlight here. Mackenzie Milton came in in the fourth quarter when Jordan Travis went out hurt. Mackenzie Milton on that drive, he came out, made a quick pass for a completion, and every time he got pressure in the pocket, he would take off, and it wasn't like he was trying to run downfield and beat defenders and get first downs. He just chunked away three yards, four yards, three yards again. And I think that wore down the Notre Dame defense there towards the end where it helped keep Florida State in the game. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't make it in the end. Uh, lost 41-38 in overtime, but I was impressed. I think Mackenzie Milton should be at least fighting for the starting job in week two. We talked about it before the show. Again, you look at Mackenzie Milton's numbers and they're not eye-popping. 5 of 7, 48 yards, QB you know, rating of 74.7. Nothing spectacular. But like Tyler said, that's part of the reason why Florida State got back in that game. He wasn't making the mistakes. He wasn't trying to play out of his own ability or the moment wasn't too big for him. He kept his focus. He got the ball into players who have the ability to turn up field and gain yardage. And even if something broke down, he made sure to get those three or four yards to put them in a better position the next down. Again, it didn't end the way that Florida State wanted to. But like I've talked about in Behind the Curtain, looking at your recruiting class, looking at what the Seminoles did on Saturday, if you're a Florida State fan, you have to feel very good about where this program is headed and getting back on track to being one of those blue bloods in in college football. Looking at some of our other picks from week one's goal line stand, 
I'm going to touch base on Ohio State-Minnesota when we get to our Saturday showcase, but I watched that North Carolina-Virginia Tech game, and Big Bear, I got to tell you, you look like a genius, and so far, all of my talking points for the round table before this year started are looking pretty bad. Uh, one of those was being North Carolina being a dark horse and Sam Howell being a Heisman contender. Neither of those looked true uh, when they, they traveled to play the Hokies. Um, Boy, wasn't Blacksburg rocking? Oh, man. That that was absolutely spectacular, no matter who you root for, to watch enter Sandman with a full stadium. That was incredible. But, Big Bear, I'll, I'll let you talk in a little bit, but that Virginia Tech defense was swarming. Sam Howell did not really look super impressive to me. Now, to be fair, I don't think his skill players really helped him out. Um, I, I watched him put a lot of balls on people's chests, uh, face mask, and they just simply dropped him. But he ended the night with 208 yards passing, one touchdown, three interceptions, and a QB rating of 41.1. That isn't anywhere close to being Heisman caliber. And if that is how the North Carolina offense is going to play for the rest of the year, they are going to be in some deep trouble. I really liked what their defense did. I think you're starting to see Tony Grimes really emerge into one of the country's top corners. I like the pressure that their defensive line generated. But with this new offensive coordinator, he likes to draw up really drawn-out plays. And with young skill players, I really don't think that plays to the benefit of what North Carolina has on offense. I would try and set up more plays to get that ball out as fast as possible and let those young guys get easy completions, easy catches, and let them do work in the open field. Again, hats off to the Hokies. That was a hell of an environment. They showed up, they played out, and they got the W. But Big Bear, what did you see watching that game? I don't know if I want to make it a hot take, but I want to say that Sam Howell lost North Carolina that game. I'm happy that Virginia Tech pulled that one out because I just had a feeling in my gut that if you got a week one in, in Blacksburg with that setting and the Hokies having their number, I just I felt like the Hokies were going to pull that one away from a team that is a little high on their horse. Sam Howell with a minute left in the game. We got 46 seconds left. The game is on the line. You're trying to make a big play. It was a designed rollout pass for Sam Howell. It was He wasn't under pressure at all. He dropped back and instantly took off to the right for about five yards behind then let himself get swarmed by pressure, and while in the midst of a tackle, decided to throw the ball away, and it went right into the hands of a Hokie defender. That's not Heisman-level performance, in, in my opinion. And so that wasn't Sam Howell's only pick of the day. He had two other ones, only 200 yards passing. They ran for 146 yards, but nothing spectacular. I was pretty disappointed with what I saw from the Tar Heels. Maybe they turn it around from here. But that's not how you want to start the year. You don't want to start it with a conference loss. And that's that's not what I was expecting from a team that was supposed to compete with Clemson for the ACC this year. And speaking of competing with Clemson for the ACC this year, let's take a look at Alabama and Miami. Um, where was Miami? I think Miami's most exciting part of that game was when they pulled out the turnover chain and then had to put it away because the call reversed it. <laughs> yeah, that was... Um... That was a good old-fashioned curb stomping, and are, are we surprised? Is anybody surprised? This is what you get from Nick Saban in Alabama, and I appreciate the folks at ESPN and all these other news stations that every year you put up this top 25 team for Alabama to open the season with, but every year, this is how we open it up with. You think, oh, you know, Alabama's losing all these guys. They got to replace, what was it? five first rounders they you know Miami brings back 19 guys maybe maybe this will be a challenge no no not the way that Alabama recruits Bryce Young was 27 of 38 for 344 yards four touchdowns Tide put up 147 yards on the ground it just looked easy Jamison Williams and John Mechie that's that's a that's a duo right there and I am I am extremely familiar with Jamison Williams. I hate I hated to see him leave the Buckeyes, but he was not going to be put over Chris Olave uh, in in Ohio State's wide receiver room. But that is a dude that is extremely talented and can fly. And you saw that on that 94 yard touchdown. Oh yeah. And that's that's what he can do. He can take the top off. Derek King 
didn't really do anything to separate Miami this year. I still think he's going to be a very solid quarterback, and, and I think he's going to put Miami in a position to win a lot of games, but Miami is still very far from being in contention with the big boys in the sport. One other one we want to touch on while we're talking about our upset picks. Cole, you, uh, man, you proved me wrong. LSU, UCLA, uh, you know what? Maybe I'm just not going to pick against my Pac-12 ever again because Chip Kelly and boys balled out. We're talking Dorian Thompson-Robinson looked phenomenal. And you can say all you want about LSU. Oh, they're, you know, they're just not the same LSU of the past. It doesn't matter. They're an SEC team. They're going to play Alabama. They're going to play teams like Georgia, Auburn, and so forth. UCLA outplayed them once again. I thought the Bruins' rush defense was phenomenal. And then on offense, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, 260 yards on only 16 passes, three touchdowns, only one interception. Zach Charbonnet, the legend of Zach Charbonnet, is still alive and well. 11 carries for 117 yards and a touchdown. He still averages over 10 yards a carry. And then receiving Greg Dolchich. This is something that I talked about on walk-on red shirts early in preseason, but I felt like Greg Dolchich was a snub when it came to All-American picks because you only get to pick one tight end, and of course they went with Charlie Kohler of Iowa State. But Greg Dolchich carved up the LSU Tigers on Saturday night, and he had three receptions, 117 yards, and a touchdown, one of them being 75-yard reception. The LSU Tiger defense did not look very good. In this one. No, and and again, I picked UCLA because I really thought that Zach Charbonnet was going to be that difference. I, I thought he was going to pound the rock, and that was what was going to allow UCLA to kind of slow the tempo of the game and put themselves in position to win. I, I was really thinking that with the talent that LSU has in their secondary, that DTR wasn't going to have that kind of performance. But they, he was passing all over the place, and you have to credit Chip Kelly for putting him in a position to do so and, and running plays that allowed UCLA to utilize their talent, especially Dolchich, and put them in open spots for DTR. He, he really didn't have to fit too many throws in tight windows. The other side of it is looking at the stats now. I told you when we talked to Steve, the biggest thing with LSU is who's going to step up and be that next guy outside of Keishon Boutte. Boutte put in work. Nine receptions, 146 yards, excuse me, 148 yards, three touchdowns. The next closest receiver, Trey Palmer, seven receptions, 47 yards. That's not going to cut it. Boutte is going to be masterful and will put up these kind of stats all year long, but somebody else has to step up if you want to win big football games. I I mean, yeah, I, I picked this just as kind of a way to... I was either going to go down two to Big Bear or I was going to tie him up. And watching UCLA, I was surprised. They brought the physicality to LSU. They attacked the Tigers. And UCLA's looking at 2-0 right now. And they look like a real contender in the Pac-12. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we have wrapped up week one. We're going to go to a short break here. But when we get back, we're going to look forward to week two. We've had a week of football in the books and we want more. I hope you do too. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Week one in the books. Big Bear and I held our own. Uh, we both ended up 6-1, and one, got there in a little different ways, but we we are currently tied, headed into week two, so no one's no one's taken a lead for that, that nice lunch that we've promised. But we're going to head into week two, starting with game day. The Iowa Hawkeyes head to the Iowa State Cyclones. Big Bear, what are your thoughts on this? So I like to look back at what, our good buddy Steve said when he came on the show and we were talking about this together, Iowa's been a bit of a, a bugaboo here for Iowa State in recent history. And after what I saw in week one with Iowa State having a hard time getting things going, 
I'm not so sure that it's a cut and dry answer in this matchup. I feel more confident in the Hawkeyes uh, after their week one win. Looking at the stats, both teams were kind of subpar in the passing game. Uh, Petrus, is that how you say it? Petrus for Iowa? Either way, he, he only put up 145 yards passing versus Brock Purdy's 199. Uh, Goodson running back for Iowa. I found I saw a nice highlight of him hurdling uh, defender in week one. That was pretty sweet. But I feel like you know the hurdles becoming the new spin move in college football, it seems. He outplayed Brees Hall in week one. They both match up pretty well. Um, if I had to give an edge here, you know, current predictor is for it to be Iowa State. I'm going with the Hawkeyes here. I just I don't see enough from Iowa State here to prove that they're ready for this. This might be their early season loss, and uh, I think it'll take them out of the conversation because they still have to play Texas and Oklahoma likely twice should they get to the championship. All that being said, I am going with the Hawkeyes this week. Yeah, that was an extremely unimpressive showing from the Cyclones. And like we said, Iowa seems to be a thorn in Iowa State's side even these last couple of years when they've started to become relevant in college football um, as, as a national landscape. My biggest question is, and it's the same that Steve kept asking, what what are we going to get from Brock Purdy? Because if you get what you got in week one, you're going to take an L. I'm sorry, Cyclones fans, but that's that's what's going to happen. Iowa is what Iowa is. They, they play tough, fundamental football. They're not going to do anything too flashy. The numbers aren't going to pop out at you, but they're going to play solid defense, and they're just going to run you down until they're able to score and and pull away at the end. And that's it was an Indiana team that I didn't think was going to be as good as we saw in 2020, but you're still holding a lot of weapons from the Hoosiers to six total points, and that's nothing to turn away at. So... Iowa State has to show me something on the offensive side of the ball early in the game that's going to convince me that they're going to be able to put points on the board and allow themselves some breathing room so that when Iowa does try to take control of possession and and force this to be their kind of game, that Iowa State can can still score points when they need to and get this W. Uh, Big Bear, I'm with you. I, I, I just don't see that happening. I think Iowa comes into the Cyclones' home, and I think they just do, they run that Anaconda style of play, and they just strangle the Cyclones and win a close one, 20-17. Next, we're going to go out to Ann Arbor, and we are going to talk about Washington and Michigan. Cole, what's your thought here going into Week 2 after what we saw from Michigan and the Huskies in Week 1? Well, listen... Before the season started, I told you this was going to be the defining game for Michigan's season. I told you if they can win this one, they're going to have the momentum moving forward and they could potentially have a really good year in terms of what was being projected of them. I'm not talking about going 11-1 and and head into the playoffs. You need to temper those expectations. You still don't have quite the talent to get you there. But you could realistically be looking at a 9-3, and 10-2 and type of year after watching some of the other Big Ten teams play. But after that absolute fucking stinker of a game that Washington put up, this doesn't look like much of a contest at all. Losing Ronnie Bell is going to hurt Michigan later on in the year for sure. That is a dude who I, I hope the speediest of recoveries, I believe I was reading it was an ACL tear. That's terrible for that young man. He's extremely talented and I hope that he's able to recover and put together a nice NFL career. But that that is a dude that Wolverine fans are going to miss dearly because that's a dude that can take the ball and score on any play. You have a lot of nice other receivers that complement him, and you'll still have a really good passing game. But he's one of those elite-level guys that can separate you. I don't think that's going to be necessary in this game. Washington had a quarterback that threw... 46 times and showed absolutely nothing for it. Seven total points that was on a QB run. So I'm less inclined to believe that this is going to be a spring for, springboard for Michigan for their season because this is a completely different Washington team than what I was expecting. But that's still not to say that this isn't going to be a nice win for Michigan at home to put themselves in a good position to move forward 
into the Big Ten play and rack up some nice wins. So go ahead and give me the Wolverines 35 to 18 on this one. Looking at this, this is like the tell of two tales. You mentioned Washington, just a really disappointing showing here on Saturday. They threw the ball way too many times to get so little yardage. And for Montana to keep that offense in check with what I touted to be probably the best offensive line in the Pac-12, that is proving to not be so true. As we've been saying a lot this episode, yes, week one jitters are out there. We're coming back to normal football for the first time in a long time. Maybe that's just a, a fluke in Washington's year. But Michigan took no time before they got going. Both Caden McNamara and J.J. McCarthy balled out on Saturday. Cade McNamara, 9 of 11, 136 yards. He averaged over 12 yards on every pass for two touchdowns. And then J.J. McCarthy comes in, clean up the game, 4 of 6, 80 yards, over 13 yards on every pass, and a touchdown. Running the ball, Corum with 14 carries, 111 yards. So he averaged over 5 and a touchdown. A.J. Henning touched the ball once, 74 yards to the house and a touchdown. Wilson as well, one carry, 43 yards, no touchdown. But look, it, overall, Michigan put work in and silenced a lot of people here. I know it's just Western Michigan, but even with Ronnie Bell gone, I still think Michigan has a good a number of uh, offensive weapons for whoever the quarterback is. I think they both looked pretty impressive. I'm going to take Michigan here. I'm going to say it's a little more of a narrow margin just because I'm going to give Washington the the shadow of a doubt of of a fluke week. I'm going to say 28-21 Michigan in the big house on Saturday. Before we get into our Saturday showcase game here for week two, we wanted to go back and take a look at our Saturday showcase game from week one. Those of you who remember, we were talking about the Georgia Bulldogs playing in Charlotte against the Clemson Tigers. Now, Cole, what was your thoughts after watching those two go head-to-head in week one? First off, our score predictions were hilariously wrong. If you're the type of college football fan that loves smash-mouth defense, low-scoring affairs, one, the first half of Penn State-Wisconsin probably got you all excited, and then this really topped it off for you. Georgia's defense is disgustingly good. And Clemson has a lot of problems to figure out on the offensive side of the ball. I was not impressed with their offensive line. They pretty much got demolished every time they took a snap. And I touched base last week on the fact of DJ Uyungle is talented and your wide receivers are talented, but you were going to need to have somebody step up in the backfield. And you didn't get that. Even if you take off... Uyunglele's negative 22 yards rushing, the team as a whole only finished with 24 yards total. That's not going to win you football games no matter how dynamic your passing game is. On the other side of that, I'm not super impressed with Georgia's offense either. You have way too much talent to not be scoring touchdowns. Realistically, if not for the pick six by the Georgia defense, you're looking at a 3-3 game headed into overtime. So a lot of things for for both teams to work on. Obviously, Georgia's happy. They'll take the win, and they'll set themselves up nicely to move forward. But uh, Georgia, no matter how good your defense is, you're going to have to find some momentum and chemistry on the offensive side of the ball if you hope to challenge Alabama. I agree with when you mentioned how dangerously scary Georgia's defense was Clemson coming into this game had the nation's longest active first half scoring streak. They've put up points in the opening frame of 143 straight games. And that came to a crashing halt in week one when DJ Ugalale was under duress and the Georgia defense was on him every play. And you said it well, the, the pick six by Georgia is the only touchdown in that game, looking at the two quarterbacks here, uh, JT Daniels, 135 yards passing, no touchdowns, and interception. For Clemson, you got DJ Ugalale, 178 yards passing, no touchdowns, interception. The only touchdown in that game was on the defensive side of the ball. Does that mean that both offensive lines struggled? Not necessarily. I just, Georgia's defense was 
scary. And we talked about this with our, our round table discussion before the season started, but, and I took Georgia as the team that I thought should come out and surprise folks because of who they have on that roster this year. This is their chance to beat Alabama and make the college football playoff and possibly win a national championship. Because if they don't do it this year, I don't think they're going to do it another year anytime soon. They are built perfectly for this season. And I felt pleasantly surprised to see them come out and put out the showing they did in week one. Will it continue as the season goes on? I'm not so sure, but to face a top five opponent in week one, hold them to three points, no touchdowns is amazing. It's it's incredible and it's unheard of in this day and age uh, in college football, especially the way that you you see this happen in swings. You'll see defenses start to dominate and then the pendulum will come back and it'll be the offensive side of the ball that advances and you'll see a lot of high scoring games. And so that's where you're in right now. You're in that upswing on the offensive side of the ball. Um, and Bulldog fans, I realize you're missing a lot of talented players on the offensive side of the ball, but you still have so much depth to only put up three points. It's just, I need to see more before I can consider you in contention to beat Alabama. And that's really the biggest hurdle for me because I really don't see Georgia stumbling against anybody else on their schedule. But if you're going to meet up with Alabama in the SEC championship game, you're going to have to score points because if, you were paying attention to Bryce Young on Saturday. They're going to put up points no matter how good your defense is. So I'm I'm excited to see how Georgia evolves because I agree with you. They they looked like a team that has a, a championship caliber defense. And if the offense can catch up, absolutely, this is a team that can win the national championship. On the flip side of that, Clemson you have to find somebody in the backfield that's going to step up, whether it's Lynn J. Dixon, whether it's the five-star freshman Will Shipley. Um, somebody's going to have to step up and give you a consistent effort running the ball so that Uyunga Galay can utilize the talent you have at wideout. Um, luckily, Clemson is in the ACC, and nobody else from the ACC outside of Virginia Tech really looks to impress this year. Um, so it should be smooth sailings back to the ACC championship game, but you definitely have a lot of work on, uh, you know, you have a lot to work on uh, moving forward. Just continuing our trend here of week one contenders that really kind of surprised us here, low point and inefficient offenses through and through. But moving on from week one, we are moving forward to our week two Saturday showcase game. This is a game that we have not just waited weeks and months for. We have waited years, Curtin Guy and I, for this matchup. We are talking about my Ducks and your Bucks facing off at last in Columbus, Ohio. The noon banger on Saturday. Ecstatic. I am pumped. I know you are. Cole, you got to tell me, what are your initial thoughts looking into this game? And are there any things that you're going to keep an eye on here for this matchup? Like you said, this this is an absolute... We've been talking about this for weeks leading up to this. This is a sledgehammer match. And I, I don't care so much as to what happened in week one because it felt like both teams were being vanilla in their play calling. They were working out a lot of kinks, throwing in a lot of young guys. And so that's why you saw the results that you did. But we were talking before the show, and I really think... What really intrigues me is the matchups that you see on paper. We're really getting strength on strength. And I don't want to say weakness on weakness, but not, you know, super impressive showings from the other sides of the ball. And when I'm talking strength on strength, I'm obviously talking about the Ohio State offense against that Oregon defense. I'm interested to see how healthy Kayvon Thibodeau is. He is still, in my mind, the number one overall draft pick for next year's draft. I'm interested to see the linebacker play from Sewell and Justin Flo. Uh, you're talking about two five stars who are immensely talented and showed up in week one for, for some big time plays. And you're looking at 
an Ohio State team that has what I believe is one of, if not the best offensive line in the country, buoyed by Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith, and Jigba. You were introduced to Travion Henderson in week one, now gotten the full effect of what it's like to go against Mayan Williams. So that's that's the thing that really uh, stands out to me. And then on the other side of the ball, Ohio State showed a lot of weaknesses in the passing game. Not so much strength in the running game, but again, this was an offense from Oregon that we talked about with Anthony Brown that, that struggled at times during week one. So I think it's an overall, all-around interesting combination of matchups across the board. I want to compare both these teams and kind of look at the game plan here. You mentioned it. We're talking about Ohio State's offense and Oregon's defense. Kayvon Thibodeau left week one with an injury to his foot. People were kind of worried. He ended up with negative test results. He's okay. They had the boot on his foot just as a precaution. He's expected to play in week two, and I, I don't doubt that he's he's going to be out there. That's, this is what he wants to play in this year. Justin Flo announced himself with authority in week one. He Remember, he wasn't supposed to start for the Ducks this year, but he came out swinging when Drew Mathis went down with injury to his knee. Justin Flo in the game against Fresno State led the defenders with 14 total tackles, five solo tackles, a tackle for loss. He even caused a fumble for Fresno State that ended up getting recovered by Oregon late in the game that I feel helped with momentum to to win that game. Looking at the strengths of both both teams, watching Ohio State on Thursday against Minnesota, yes, they struggled early on, which was to be expected with C.J. Stroud in his first true start for the Buckeyes. But their weaknesses in the passing game are still their strengths. In the second half of that game, C.J. Stroud, even though he wasn't throwing effectively, still found the guys that are going to make plays. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave were making the big plays that helped the Duck helped the Buckeyes <laughs> pull away there. See, I'm stuck in the Ducks, man. Running the ball, Mayan Williams isn't the one that scares me, I don't think. I, his top speed's not phenomenal. He's a he's a brute, so I mean, you got a third and one. I, that would scare me with Mayan Williams. Travion Henderson scares me. That dude's top end speed with full force authority coming at you. That's what scares me. <laughs> but I like what the Ducks have in terms of KT up front. He's running the Joker spot, so he kind of is a hybrid between defensive end and linebacker. And again, when you're trying to focus your offensive line to stopping him rushing the edge. You're going to open a hole that is going to get filled by the full force of Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. And for C.J. Stroud, still young and his first couple true starts, I don't want to have that kind of pressure on me, and I don't want to take that many big hits in this game. So offensive line has to hold back the front line and keep the Ducks at bay. Oregon on offense scares me, truthfully so. I don't like Anthony Brown. I'm sorry. That's just my brutal opinion. I think in a year like this, if you aren't that confident in beating Ohio State and you want to be a title contender, just throw Ty Thompson out there as a true freshman. Auburn threw Bo Nix out at Oregon two years ago, and he won his first start against Oregon. So we've seen that guys will do it and they'll succeed. I would rather take Ty Thompson's struggles and learning curve in his first year now than have a one-year rental on Anthony Brown that'll then leave, and you have to then go through Ty Thompson's struggles. This team is growing. A lot of sophomores, freshmen, and a couple of juniors, these guys are going to be together for another year. I don't want them to struggle next year. I want Ty Thompson now. And and I I agree with you. Um, you know, We both talked about Anthony Brown was making decisions that as a guy who has played this game for as long as he has, especially at the collegiate level, should not be making. And throwing the ball in the dirt and making some of the decisions that he was against Fresno State would not give me confidence if I was an Oregon fan. So that's completely warranted. And I agree with you. You have a kid who is highly touted, can absolutely sling the rock, and you will return a good majority of your team. And guess what? You're talented enough that you can allow him to develop. And even if you were to drop this game in Columbus you would still be in a really good position that as he develops and as the young guys around him develop, you would be an absolute force at the end of the year in the Pac-12 and the national landscape. So I agree with Big Bear on this. I I really did think that Oregon would choose to go with the younger guy instead of taking that one-year lease on Anthony Brown. I can understand the frustration because 
that's a guy that truthfully doesn't scare me in terms of being able to beat our secondary, even if it is a bunch of young guys because we don't have seven banks, Cameron Brown, and if Proctor is out due to his injury that he suffered against Minnesota. Uh, Ty Thompson is a guy that has an arm that can make you pay. And even if he were to make a couple of mistakes and throw a couple of interceptions, he's also a guy that comes with so much upside that you take that in stride. That's what I'm saying. It's it's going to be a, a back-and-forth game, and I don't think Anthony Brown is going to make mistakes that are going to cost the offense, you know, Oregon to, to lose the game. I just don't think he gives you enough to put you over the top in terms of scoring points to beat the Buckeyes. So with that being said, who are you taking in this game? You're going to pick Oregon, right? <laughs> I think all of our uh, our friends and family and definitely our listeners probably know where this one is headed. But um, again, just just coming off what I said, I, I told Big Bear two years ago, I said, two years from now, your defense is going to be nasty. And I stick by that. Um, and it wasn't just because of uh, Thibodeau. It was Flo. It was Sewell. It was the big boys that they are finally putting in the trenches and changing that philosophy up from what Oregon used to be. It used to be speed. It used to be flash. It used to be those guys that can take the ball and absolutely hit a home run anytime they touch it. Mario Cristobal realized that if you want to play ball with the big boys, you got to put the big boys in the trenches. And that's what he's done. Overall, I think I just don't think Anthony Brown gives you enough on the offensive side of the ball, even with that young secondary, um, to, to put you over the top. Give me 35-31 Buckeyes. I want to do mine a little differently. Instead of telling you what I think is going to happen, here's what I think needs to happen in order for Oregon to win this game. Because, look, I'm not going to pick against my team here, all right? I'm taking the Ducks in this one. I don't care if I lose it or not. I'm taking the Ducks. And here's what has to happen for the Ducks to get this win in Columbus. I'm going to throw Anthony Brown out the window because his play is so suspect to me that I don't know what I'm going to get on Saturday. And if it's great, it's great. I mean, I'll be thrilled, but I'm just going to assume he's not going to exist in this game. Oregon, on the offensive side of the ball, needs to give C.J. Verdell the rock. And it proved in the fourth quarter against Fresno State when Brown and the offense was stagnant on multiple drives. C.J. Verdell stepped up, he looked his coaches in the eye, and he said, give me the fucking football. That boy averaged like seven yards a carry, just kept crushing it through the heart of Fresno's defense. And if you can get Oregon's offensive line to keep guys like Jack Sawyer and Zach Harrison at bay and even Haskell Garrett to open up a little room, just just give it to CJ and let him pound up the up the gut. And then when that starts to wear down, try and hit Travis on the outside, Travis die and, and let him run. If Anthony Brown has to throw, I'm really hoping that the true freshman Troy Franklin introduces himself in this big game in Columbus. He didn't get any action in week one, but he was listed as a starter on the depth chart for week one. Not sure what happened there, but perhaps the Ducks want to keep him off film because he's kind of a wild card now for the Buckeyes in week two, and they would probably have to figure out who's going to guard him. I'm hoping that Troy Franklin shows up and has a great game in his first game in a Duck uniform. On the defensive side of the ball, Kayvon Thibodeau needs to be healthy, and I need Justin Flo to put up at least two sacks on C.J. Stroud. I need him to be uncomfortable and not excited and having his way throwing the ball to Chris Olave, which I think the Ducks are going to have Jamal Hill, who is back from being suspended. They currently have Triquez Bridges listed as the starter, but I think he will replace him during that game and take his starting role back. They have to shut down Chris Olave. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they need to limit him. So in this game, it's going to be close. All that being said, I'm going to say 31-28 Oregon if they want to win this game. No, and and that's a, that's a really good point because, again, I am an Ohio State fan, but when you talk about Chris Olave and you talk about Garrett Wilson, you're talking about two of the best wide receivers in the entire country. And I said this going into last year's national championship game when we were playing Alabama. You don't stop dudes like that. It just doesn't happen in this day and age. So to focus your efforts on limiting them, like Big Bear said, that's not saying, you know, put three guys on him, make sure he doesn't catch the ball. 
no, he's going to catch the ball, but don't let him do what he did to Minnesota where he turns the corner and takes it another 40 yards. Or even that, I mean, yeah, he can. he's going to catch the ball. He's just that great of an athlete. But take away C.J. Stroud's ability to throw him the ball is what they need to do. Right, and and so it's putting pressure on C.J., it's tackling in space, making sure that Ohio State isn't hitting the home run ball. As an Ohio State fan, that's what you need to do because this team can score on any possession. It's what they're built to do. And if you can force a young quarterback to have to drive on you, that's going to be where your most success is going to be found. The other thing I want to touch on with this game, and I know you and I can both agree on this part, what the fuck are we doing with a noon game on this? Seriously? I mean, this is this is atrocious. This honestly has me upset because this is a primetime game. I understand that Fox is all about their big noon kickoff and they're trying to push that, and I can respect that, but this should be an 8 o'clock game. Not only because it's a huge matchup and one that we've been waiting for for many years, especially after losing out in the one in Austin last year, but also the fact that Oregon is basically playing a 9 a.m. game now. As an Ohio State fan, I'm saying, well, that's a pretty good advantage for us. That's not what you want if you're trying to beat the best of the best. If I want to beat Oregon, I want to beat them at their best, not a half-asleep team. It's just as shitty for the fans that live out on the West Coast, too. Breakfast and football sounds great, but this should be an 8 o'clock kickoff. And, and I really think Fox fucked this up. I always thought it was fun when I would travel out to Oregon and a lot of my relatives were playing fantasy football. It really was breakfast and football. Like you're cooking eggs and bacon and pancakes. Okay, go grab your plate and go sit down because the one o'clock games Eastern time are starting. That's a 10 o'clock start for them. Now the Ducks have tried to take precautions to this. That's why they started their week one game against Fresno at 11 o'clock Pacific. So they've been accustomed to getting their players up early just for this matchup. I think from what I heard, Oregon players are getting up at 6 a.m. their time every day just to be accustomed to a 9 a.m. start on the Eastern time. They don't want them to face any jet lag getting off the plane. They want them to be ready to go, have their minds right going into this because, as you said, it's a bit of a disadvantage. I I mean, I, I don't want to cry boo on this, but when you lose your home matchup last year due to COVID, you would kind of hope that maybe as a gesture, the media or whoever, they would shift this game to being an afternoon or a night game just because it's it's that, to me, it, I mean, not just me, to a lot of people, this is that big of a matchup. We're talking about two top 10 teams. I, we saw Georgia and Clemson last week, but this would be the top 10 matchup this week. Georgia and Clemson played at 8 o'clock on week one, and Oregon and Ohio State are playing at noon. Like, take the money out of it, and you're hurting. You're hurting the sport. Just, I don't like it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and and I can promise you and every other Duck fan that is listening that I've been on the board since this was scheduled, and the majority of Buckeye Nation is confused and a little pissed off that this is at noon. We've set noon bangers for when we play Mac schools in the beginning of the season, or when we have Rutgers or Maryland come to town. Not for Oregon. It's like Tyler said, it's for a a multitude of reasons because you want to show respect, you know, for Oregon because we lost that game last year. You want to show respect for their fans that are on the West Coast still and want to watch this game. Um, But from a recruiting standpoint, this doesn't make sense. You want to show recruits the one of the best atmospheres in college football, it isn't at noon. It's at 8 o'clock in a primetime showdown with a packed stadium of people who have been tailgating all day. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm not happy about it. I know Big Bear's not happy about it, but it is what it is, and, you know, both teams are going to have to show up and, and play in it. So, uh, good news is it looks like it's going to be a beautiful day to play football, 82 degrees and sunny. So at least we have that going for us. Yeah. And those who don't know us very well, let's see. After Thursday, maybe midday Friday this week, we won't be talking until Sunday morning. Like we play softball together on Sunday. That might be the first time we talk after that game. It's going to be dead silence no matter what happens, mostly because it's always me that's pissed. And it probably might be again. 
But we love our teams so much that, you know, we're, we're diehards. What do you expect? Exactly. And Tyler is, is, is one of the most gracious fans that I've come across. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy these matchups because, one, they're, they're two excellent programs that are going at it. And, you know, the last time we had this, it was for the national championship. And I don't think you can get much bigger in terms of a rivalry, you know, game between two friends than something like that. But um, even in the Rose Bowl, when we were still in high school, that was humongous to us. And so, you know, we we do it as a, as a respect thing. We, we almost never text each other during those games while it's happening. Um, Tyler has always been, like I said, gracious in, in the defeat that we've that he's witnessed over the last two years. Um, and I will, of course, return the favor if, if that is what happens on Saturday. But yeah, we, we probably won't talk to each other until we absolutely have to on five o'clock on uh, Sunday when we when we go to play softball. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, that is our Saturday showcase. We are so ecstatic for week two, more than any other week in the last 12 months. We're going to go to a one last break. When we come back, it's been a little while. We had to com- you know compile some stuff, but we don't want to leave y'all hanging. We have a that's fucked for you this week. We'll be right back with some fun, juicy stuff. We here at First and Goal want to take this time to thank you for listening and provide a quick word to potential sponsors. We're looking to get your brand on our show. The First and Goal podcast, as well as the Walk on Red Shirts, is continuously growing and can help spread your brand to college football fans across the country. If you have any interest in joining us or just curious about what we can offer, please reach out to us at Walk on Red Shirts or at Goal underscore First. Welcome back, everybody. This is the moment you've been waiting for for several weeks. We left you hanging, but it's back. This is That's Fucked. And to start this off with, we're going to go to Curtain Guy, who's going to tell us about a very funny one that we heard not too long ago. Yeah, so Sunday night, Florida State and Notre Dame duked it out. Uh, the Irish walked away with a 41-38 to overtime win. And head coach of the Irish, Brian Kelly, was not ecstatic. Um, he was so displeased that he went as far as calling for his entire team to be executed. I- I'm going to go ahead and, and play this clip for you guys so you can hear it in his words. What did you think of your team's ability to withstand Florida State's impressive comeback? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of uh, execution. Maybe maybe our entire team needs to be executed after tonight. I've watched a lot of college football in my time. I don't think I've ever heard a comment like that during an interview. I've seen a lot of funny ones. Mike Gundy's I'm a man, I'm 40 is an all-time classic. This felt dark, and he's tried to walk it back today, but I just don't see how you can possibly justify a comment like that. I can understand being upset. You probably thought this game was going to be over midway through the third quarter, and your team obviously didn't close out the way that you wanted to. You still got the win. But to call for your entire team to be executed, Brian Kelly, all I've got to say is... That's fucked. Next, we're going to take you out west where a petition is calling for the Arizona State University to ditch the mascot name of Sun Devils in favor of Sun Angels. Reason for this is coming from Christian fans of Arizona State wanting them to stop idolizing the devil and join the righteous. They said the school should replace Sparky the Devil with a more family-friendly mascot. This is just something that never goes away. We've lost the Washington Redskins. We're losing the Cleveland Indians. And those make sense. Don't get me wrong. I understand those who are very much insulted and feel that it's a a very um, disgraceful look on the Native American heritage. But Arizona State, it's just a mascot, people. Like, Georgia 
is the Bulldogs, and they put a dog in a crate for half the game on the field in the heat of Georgia. What do you want them to do? Like, set him free to the wild? I get that the Sun Devils, like, insult you if you're of Christian faith. I, you're looking at two Christian guys. But I'm not looking at this going, oh, my gosh, they're idolizing the devil. We need to get rid of him right now. Throw holy water on him. All of Arizona, throw holy water. No. There was a poll done on Twitter by Arizona Central Sports where they asked people to vote. Do you think Arizona State needs to change its mascot? 91.6% said, of course not. 2.1% said, maybe it should. Only 6% want it changed, and that's the 6% that are mad. Until you get over 50, all I gotta say is, that's fucked. The last one we want to talk about, oh gosh, this was the best thing we saw in news in a long time. Early on in the college football season, when not many games are taking place, like week zero, they show some of the top high school teams on ESPN's outlets. This game took place in the NFL Hall of Fame stadium in Canton, Ohio, between the IMG Academy of Florida playing this team from Ohio. Uh, what's their name? Bishop Sycamore. Yeah. Um, that sounds all good and dandy. And, and I'm one of those people who enjoys watching these these high school showcases from ESPN. Um, I don't think ESPN does a great job at their recruiting rankings. Um, I personally, I'm a fav- fan of 247. But it's nice to see the the top-end recruits and the future stars of college football you know, play in high school and to truly get an understanding of how dominant they are. The only problem with all of this is that Bishop Sycamore doesn't exist. Sure. You saw a team suit up and play against IMG Academy and promptly get their cheeks handed to them 58 to nothing. But these weren't even high school students. These were Juco kids that dropped out and found whatever ragtag equipment that was laying around and decided to play football. Oh, and by the way, their coach, who got fired, by the way, I'm not sure who fires a head coach from a school that doesn't exist. Actually, from what I was listening to, apparently his defensive line is also the superintendent. So you got fired by one of your own employees, but their head coach has active warrants on him. As more information about this story came out, it just got wilder. This feels like it's going to be a 30 for 30 someday. It, it was absolutely insane. You're talking about the top end talent. You know, IMG has kids that are going to Blue Bloods across the country playing against what very well could have been 35 year old men and absolutely obliterating them. It, it really is. You're taking dudes that are much, much older than high school students and getting destroyed. And the thing is, is this is the second year that IMG has played Bishop Sycamore. So either you don't care about who you're actually playing or you do know and you're just trying to get an easy W, which if you're IMG, everyone is an easy W. You're playing average high schools with four and five star kids across the board. You shouldn't come across a team outside of St. Thomas Aquinas, Bishop Gorman, or a couple of those Miami, Florida teams that really gives you a test. I was telling Big Bear, I got to give this one to everyone across the board. I have to give it to Bishop Sycamore for running one of the worst scams of all time. I have to give it to IMG for signing up to play this scam of a program two years in a row. And I have to give it to ESPN, who didn't vet this roster at all, allegedly gave it to a marketing group who didn't vet it at all, and then decided to put this game on national television. So Bishop Sycamore, IMG, and ESPN, you're all getting a... That's fucked. Well, folks, once again, another jam-packed episode. We love that you've been hanging with us. This was episode six, and, and to be honest, it has been 
it has been awesome to do this with Big Bear and, and to talk to you guys every week about something that we're both very passionate about. Um, we're, we're loving all of you guys interacting with us on Twitter and, and TikTok and social media. And, and please, please continue to do so. Let us know what you think about what we're talking about. Give us your thoughts. Give us your questions. We would love to answer questions for you guys. Um, we look forward to touching base on all of our goal line stand picks from this week. And, and we love to look forward to what's, what's to come up in week three. So once again, thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of First and Goal.